Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. This week, I want to look at some poetry by an American poet called Robert Hayden. Robert Hayden died in 1980 and he's got a fabulous clarity of style about him that I hope you'll enjoy. The first poem I want to look at of two is a poem called Those Winter Sundays. It's, it's probably the most famous Robert Hayden poem, anthologised a lot, and it was written in the early 60s. It's a kind of a sonnet in that it has 14 lines, which is the formula for a sonnet, but sonnets in their tightest definition have got things like iambic pentameter, etc., which I won't bore you with. So I'm going to read the first, oh, I don't know, the first half of it, and we'll just, just get straight in because I know I go on about, and who cares? We're here for the poetry. Let's face that. Those Winter Sundays by Robert Hayden. Sundays too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Then with cracked hands that ached from labour in the weekday weather, made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking. Right. First line, Sundays too, my father got up early. So, Sundays too, we know that it's Sunday and we know that his father, it seems, gets up early for work, we guess. But even on Sundays, he gets up early. We've got something about the father there. People who get up early, maybe a bit stern, maybe a bit formal, maybe not loose, laid back and lazy. Sundays too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Remember, this is those winter Sundays. The blue-black cold, I think, means that time in a winter morning, that, that thing that's just between night and daylight when it's kind of blue-black. And also, obviously, it's cold. The blue-black cold, early mornings, reminds me of when I used to work in a factory and I used to get up at that time of day in the winter when it hadn't become daylight yet and would step out into the street with my little bundle of sandwiches wrapped in waxproof paper and there'd be lots of other figures making their way through the, uh, the blue-black cold as well. Anyway... Then I want you to listen to some of the sort of K sounds in this. The blue-black cold, first of all, and then with cracked hands that ached from labour in the weekday weather, made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering breaking I think that sort of staccato K sound that runs through there is there to suggest the sound that a fire makes. So someone hearing this fire in the distance, that cracking sound that you hear of a fire beginning and the wood cracking and etc. That's what I think the K sounds are for. Okay, 
and put on his clothes in the blue-black cold, then with cracked hands that ached from labour in the weekday weather. So we're getting more of a picture of the speaker's father now, a working man who's cracked hands. So he's, he's doing, as it says, labour in the weekday weather. He's not working in an office, this guy. He's doing the hard work. And he made banked fires blaze, banked up, so sort of stacked fires. No one ever thanked him. So you get that internal rhyme there of banked and thanked. No one ever thanked him. And that's the first sense I think we get that there's a problem here. It begins like a hard-working father is up making the, the fire warming the house. But why did no one ever thank him for it? I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking. And I think also there, the cold splintering, breaking, a bit like ice cracking. It's like the cold is steadily crumbling as the warm goes into the house. But we hear that still going on. When I was a kid living in a council house in the West Midlands, we often in the winter got, this was pre-central heating. We got ice on the insides of the bedroom windows. And it reminded me of that. But I know poems remind me of all sorts of things. And sometimes I think I shouldn't even tell you what they remind me of. But if you're not finding yourself in a poem, often you're not finding very much at all, is what I think. I don't know if I'd agree with that if I saw it written down. But it uh, feels right at the moment. Okay, so that's the first section, all those K sounds and that information about the the father. He's a hard-working man who is never thanked for getting up before everyone else, getting up early on a Sunday just to get the fire going and to warm the family home. Now, the K sounds have sort of dissipated. Now the room is warm, but I'll read you the second part. When the rooms were warm... He'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house, speaking indifferently to him, who had driven out the cold, and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? Ooh. Love it. So when the rooms were warm, he'd call. That, that, that sounds like a beautiful domestic scene. The dad who doesn't want the family to get up, whoever the family are, however many there are, until the room is warm. And slowly I would rise and dress. It sounds like a slow Sunday. Easy on a Sunday morning, I'm tempted to say. It all sounds good, but then the next line, fearing the chronic angers of that house. So what felt like a laid-back, slow rise and dress now becomes more about trepidation, more about fear of what's downstairs, if you like, when you get out of your room. My dad, who I loved very, very much, was a drinking man, and there was certainly... Attention began to kick in at about 
10.40, at night when we knew he'd be getting back from the pub and we were never certain of what mood he might bring home with him. Like I say, he was a great bloke. I loved him very much, but everybody's got their darknesses and that was his. And often he was jovial and sometimes he wasn't. And this is that feeling now. Fearing the chronic angers of that house. Chronic as in long-lasting and recurrent. And also not, not of him, but of that house. And it's that thing when sometimes the mood of... You know, people go into a home and say it feels, something feels wrong about this. I think masonry can almost sort of absorb emotions. I think this in old churches sometimes, all that hard praying people have done sort of gets into the plaster work. Of course it's imposed by the human mind. I don't think I actually believe that the emotions in some sort of corrosive form go into the walls, but it can feel that way. When the rooms were warm, he'd call and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house, speaking indifferently to him. And now, perhaps, the uh, the reason the dad was never thanked is coming to the fore a little. There's problems in this house. There's anxiety and tension and there's the smell of, perhaps, violence in the house, I think speaking indifferently to him who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. It's Sunday, remember. So this dad has got up and polished his son's good shoes for church, presumably. So now there's a sort of, yeah, it's Sunday. It, there's this religion in the air. And then this last two lines which I think are really beautiful so we've got all that we've got this sort of contrast of the father who cares enough to get up early to light the fire to polish the good shoes but also it seems a father who we gather is responsible for the chronic angers of that house what did I know what did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? And I think now he's looking back on his own behaviour, on the fact that he never thanked his father, on the fact that he spoke indifferently to him. What did I know? What did I know? And this is someone, maybe we all do this, you stand later retrospectively looking at the behavior of your parents that you judged so harshly at the time and you look back on that and you think you know what I thought I knew but now I see it from this place it all looks different what did I know what did I know of love's austere and lonely offices Austere being strict um, and severe, or of course very sort of Spartan without comfort or, or luxury of any kind, both seem kind of apt here. Love's austere and lonely offices. So maybe the love he gets from this father 
is not about embraces and kisses and hugs. Maybe the warmth comes only from the fire, something that he can do practically with his workman's hands. Love's austere and lonely offices. Offices, I think, as in sort of duties, services done for another person. But also, now that we've introduced religion so recently in the good shoes, that the, the shoes for church. Also, maybe offices, of course, can mean daily chanted prayers. The way that his dad's activities, his daily work, he's getting the house warm, he's polishing shoes. Maybe they're a kind of a prayer. Uh, uh, prayers are about love, and so are these everyday sort of domestic nuts and bolts activities. These seem to stand in for the the hogs and the kisses. They seem to be a sort of a sorry or a, a sort of a caress that his father is incapable of giving. And maybe the work, the paid work and the unpaid work, the labour in the weekday weather and the lighting the fires and the polishing the shoes is a sort of a penance for the love the conventional love, if you like, that the kid isn't getting, the speaker isn't getting. I think we all, certainly as a parent, sometimes you try and compensate for the your own shortfall, for feeling you're not quite the father you would love to be. So that's what's going on here, I think. I think this is a portrait of a hard-working guy who doesn't feel he's doing everything right and who's feeling he's doing a lot of things wrong. And we don't know about the chronic angers of that house. We can only imagine what they are. But what we see is some of the recompense for that, some of the, the making up for that goes on. The fire, the shoes, love's austere and lonely offices and lonely I think is important here those who are unable to express love maybe except through such offices ultimately do feel loneliness rage and um, all that stuff that went on in the house here I'm looking at it again the chronic angers of that house are always going to end in loneliness I know okay one other poem, and it's, I'm warning you, it's, it's a similar theme. It's called The Whipping, and it's also from the early 60s. Straight in, first three stanzas. The old woman across the way is whipping the boy again and shouting to the neighbourhood her goodness and his wrongs. Wildly crashes through elephant ears, pleads in dusty zinnias, while she, in spite of crippling fat, pursues and corners him. She strikes and strikes the shrilly circling boy till the stick breaks in her hand. His tears are rainy weather to wound-like memories. So this now is more distanced. This time we're actually seeing the chronic angers of someone else's house. So it's not 
inferred now it's visible but it's the old woman across the way so it's just given us enough distance to look at this with some sort of objectivity at least initially the old woman across the way is whipping the boy again and the the again is like the chronic in the last poem this is a cyclical repetitive thing that's going on and shouting to the neighbourhood her goodness and his wrongs. A sort of a public statement here, this uh, physical punishment. Public statement of justice and decency, if you like. It's like some terrible morality play that's, that's going on in, in which the, the sin is punished. Wildly he crashes through elephant ears, pleads in dusty zinnias. He's in the garden here, he's, he's going through the, the plants. I guess he's amongst nature and this is a kid, it seems, who is still operating as a natural. He's not yet been curbed or tamed and that's why he's been whipped to try and remedy that while she, in spite of crippling fat, pursues and corners him. Now, a reference to crippling fat in 2021 is, is, is different from a, a reference to crippling fat in 1962. I think that Robert Hayden is suggesting that this is a woman who, who has her own excesses, who follows her own urges on occasion and... Despite that, she can't understand any failings or any weaknesses in her child. She must impose the rules regardless of her own behaviour. Now, if you listen to the sound of this, and I know I've already driven you slightly crazy with the crackling fire, but this sounds to me like someone being hit. She strikes and strikes the shrilly circling boy till the stick breaks. That strike, strike, shrilly circling stick breaks. And then it stops because the stick has broken and stick breaks is also at the end of a line. So those sounds are suddenly gone because the stick has broken. See it again. She strikes and strikes the shrilly circling boy till the stick breaks in her hand. His tears are rainy weather to wound-like memories. Now, what's happening there is when the stick breaks, the focus is no longer across the way at this woman and this boy. The focus comes back to the speaker. His tears are rainy weather to wound-like memories. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the literary term pathetic fallacy. And the pathetic fallacy is something that you will know, even if you didn't know it was called that. And it happens in movies, television, as well as in books and poems or whatever. But it will be that if someone is desperately sad in a film, for example it will rain or that there will be a storm if someone is very distressed. It's as if the environment is sympathetic to you. Uh, it, it is somehow joining in with your horrors. I think, and many of you who know this term, will think of poor Fanny Robin 
from um, far from the madding crowd who, uh, due to a series of errors, ends up in her grave and the rain pours out of a gargoyle's mouth and washes away the flowers that someone has kindly put there. Anyway, that's what's going on here, I think. His tears are rainy weather to wound-like memories. So now the speaker is seeing the boy's tears and this whole incident is reminding him of his own wound-like memories. So every wound, I suppose, is a memory, but rarely a happy one. And now we're going to go into the speaker's life, the speaker's memory, and see how it is similar to what he has been watching, I think, from his window. My head gripped in bony vice of knees, the writhing struggle to wrench free, the blows, the fear, worse than blows, that hateful words could bring, the face that I no longer knew or loved. Well, it is over now, it is over, and the boy sobs in his room. And the woman leans muttering against the tree, exhausted, purged, avenged in part for lifelong hidings she has had to bear. Right. My head gripped in bony vice of knees, so actually being held between the knees of a parent, we assume. The writhing struggle to wrench free. That writhing wrench, trying to get out of it. The blows, the fear worse than blows that hateful words could bring. So it's the things that the parent is saying is doing more harm than the hitting. And this awful, I mean, beautiful but awful line the face that I no longer knew or loved. I mean, that is the face of rage, isn't it? You ever look at a loved one when they are screaming at you and think, that is not the face that I know and love. It's Mr. Hyde or Mrs. Hyde has arrived. And that terrible, this whole scene is just that memory, I mean, my head gripped in bony vice of knees. There's a terrible practicality to that. And then after that, the face that I no longer knew or loved. I mean, one hopes that is temporary. It is the face of an enraged and violent parent. And to look at that face and think, that's not the face that I have looked to for comfort and support through my childhood. Well, it is over now. It is over. And the boy sobs in his room. Now, we've had this boy being whipped across the way and we've had the speaker remembering his own boyhood. These two lines, which does it refer to? I think it gets very ambiguous now. Well, it is over now. It is over. Does he mean that thrashing across the road? Or does he mean that phase of his life when he had regular thrashings? And this particularly, I think, is fab. And the boy sobs in his room. Now, when you first read that, you think of the boy who's just been whipped across the way. But is 
that who we are speaking of. And the boy sobs in his room. Isn't that the speaker, possibly? As he cries, as he remembers being the boy whose head was gripped in a bony vice of knees. He seems to look back out after this and the woman leans muttering against a tree, exhausted, purged, avenged, in part for lifelong hidings she has had to bear. And it's interesting, that last poem that we read, uh, Those Winter Sundays, the way it ended with the, the good shoes being polished, it seemed, for, for church going, and then that use of offices, which could well mean daily prayer. This began quite early with the woman shouting to the neighbourhood her goodness and his wrongs. There's some sort of public morality going on here. But at the end, it gets really biblical. The woman leans muttering against a tree, exhausted, purged. Now, to be purged can mean to be cleansed of sin and avenged in part for lifelong hidings. We get a sense here of the avenging angel, those angels that were not about caring, that were about punishing wrongdoers, like the angels who rained sulphur and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. To bring up that word avenged there, I don't think is accidental and purged. That Putting them together, you've got to think of religious imagery, I think. So, and the woman leans muttering against a tree, exhausted, purged, avenged in part for lifelong hidings she has had to bear. And there's a few things. Again, it's that sympathy, it seems, for the violent parent, just like we got in those winter Sundays. At the end of the poem, a slight standing back and thinking, yeah, but what made her this way? How many hidings has she had to take to think that that is the way that you live? that that is the way you establish your goodness, by driving the sin out of your children. I think those lifelong hidings, perhaps not just hidings in the violent sense, but also hidings as in shame and social estrangement and all the things that make you hide things, If we're talking about religion, and I'm a religious man myself, but I cannot deny that religion can encourage both kinds of hiding, secrecy and shame and a feeling that you are not as good as you should be, that things need to be secreted so that you are not judged, and also physical violence. So I don't know that we see the love in this poem the flip side of the angry parent like we do in those winter Sundays. We only see really in this the avenging angel uh, rather than the, the guardian type of angel. And also, like I say, they're across the way. They, we aren't really close enough to see the, the complications of that sort of parenting, where it comes from. Is the love there? Is the loneliness there? Is the pain there in that parent that's producing this 
behavior. But the last two lines, I think, in part for lifelong hiding she has had to bear, I think that's guesswork. It doesn't sound like he knows this, but he's assuming that this violence has come. It is learned violence, if you like. And like I say, the hidings could be ambiguous in meaning as well. I think they certainly refer to the general hard knocks, the disappointments and injustices of this woman's life. I hope I've done Robert Hayden a good service today, good offices. I think both of these poems, they, yeah, they are sad, but there is a real love in them. I think the way he, at the end, looks back on his father and says, what did I know, what did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? And the way that he can justify, in part, this woman's behaviour across the way for lifelong hiding she has had to bear. It's everyone is part of this cycle of violence and rage and, and the purging of sin and the fear of failing. And they're all stuck in it. And now even, you know, the man watching that activity across the way is instantly flicked back to his own childhood and what happened to him. Um, there you go. So, um, Robert Hayden, check him out. So thanks for listening to Series 4 of my poetry podcast. Don't forget you can find all the previous series and episodes on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I will be back, he said with a tone of confidence that convinced everyone, except maybe himself. <laughs>